Hello and welcome to the Lead More Podcast. I'm your host, John T. Meyer. The Lead More Podcast is the show where we sit down with leaders of today to help inspire leaders of tomorrow. Because I believe the world needs more leaders, and I also believe that leadership doesn't always look maybe the way we think it does or the way that we most often see it. So we're trying to showcase all sorts of leaders here on the Lead More Podcast, give them a voice, give them a platform, and learn from them so we can have more leaders. So are you ready to lead? Come on the journey with us. In this episode, sit down with Bill Anderson. Bill is the Chief Experience Officer at the First National Bank in Sioux Falls. It's a 136-year-old community bank, sort of like a debate on if it's the oldest bank here in town or not. There's some, some old stories that go way back. But Bill had a lot of stories to share. He has a really fascinating resume that ranges from starting his career at the Central Intelligence Agency as an analyst. He was a university professor. He was a startup founder. He was a partner in a marketing agency. Now he works at a bank and some other jobs in between there too. We tried to look through what's the kind of the through line through all those experiences. What's the commonalities? How has he used curiosity to sort of shape his career and use those tools along the way, but go on to the next thing, which I really found interesting thinking about, you know, what might be next for me and and how you change and go into those new roles. We also talked a lot about anxiety and how leaders can deal with anxiety, with stress, with that pressure of feeling like you need to do more and always be going further and adding more to your plate. How do you handle all that? How do you know when to step back and just be okay with it all? So, Bill shares some great stories. Uh, I love the way his brain thinks. He has a fascinating mind, and you'll see that very quickly in this episode. So enjoy my conversation here with Bill Anderson. All right, here we are for another episode of the Lead More Podcast. I'm with my friend Bill Anderson. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, John. It's awesome to be here. I like the uh, real casual for you. You're usually, you know, pretty dressed up in the bank attire. Super casual today. I'm actually participating in uh, the Graduate School of Banking at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, So I'm taking a little break from that to be here today. So I'm in my online. Unfortunately, typically the first year was in Philly, but the last two years have been been online. So, uh, yep, I'm in the Startup Sioux Falls t shirt and the Minnesota (laughs) Twins hat today. I wore the Twins hat for you mostly. I appreciate that. I wanted wanted to uh, get some some friendly vibes going. Supporting, you know, the team, the volunteer, the nonprofit that you serve on, as well as the, the local baseball exactly. team. I guess exactly. local for us. Um, well, let's jump right in. Tell folks what you do today, and then we'll sort of reverse engineer because yeah. your resume is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. Uh, it's a ran- <laughs> it's a random walk to somewhere. Um, so yeah. Um, I came to my role, Chief Customer Experience Officer at um, the First National Bank in Sioux Falls in 2017. It hasn't um, been that long already. It hasn't been that long, actually. I joined the organization as the Customer Experience Manager. And really, my role was to help think a little bit more concretely about how we evolve the bank to become a more modern uh, community bank. Yep. And you know that there are all kinds of ways to think about that. I mean, from the moment people walk into our facilities, what does that look and feel like? Yep. To the way that they encounter our digital technology, to how we they can adopt products and services. And you know, since I started in that role, um, I, my my role has just kind of expanded a little bit. So I, I managed to have a background in marketing, which we can get into. And so I uh, I took on leadership of the marketing team mm-hmm. when one of our executives retired. Um, and then not long after that, I, I took on facilities. 
and inf information technology yeah. and uh, customer service and uh, deposit operations and and then eventually business solutions, which is our our business customer facing deposit related group of people. And so, in some ways, I'm a, a bit like a chief operating officer yeah. with marketing yeah. involved. And and really, the whole idea is, you know, once our salespeople have done their work. My job is to ensure with my people to, that the experience that, that our customers have is, is great and, and that we're always listening to the voice of the customer and trying to evolve our products and services to, to be what they want and need and, and also be competitive in a really, really heavily banked environment yeah. in Sioux Falls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's where my question lies. Is it, where does chief experience officer begin and where does it end? Because it, it can yeah. argue it touches everything. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I think... One of the great parts of being a chief experience officer in any organization is you do have um, this accountability to the customer and the customer is internal and external yeah. uh, because if people have a lousy experience internally, it reflects externally. So there's that kind of nonlinear path. Yep. And then there's the linear path directly to the customer. So we're constantly you know, engaging the customer in, in our work. So, that, I mean, to me, that's really exciting. Um, but you have a lot of responsibility and not always a lot of authority. So sure. the, the other thing you have to be in a chief customer experience officer role is a diplomat. Um, you know, most of <laughs> most of my teams are shared services. So the marketing sure. team has lots of uh, experience that they need to be able to draw on to work across the organization. But it's it's a finite pool. The IT team is the same way. Our deposit services team. You know, it's we're all a shared service in my area. So as much as unilaterally, I would love to say we're doing this and this and this and this and this is the new technology and yeah. this is the new investment. Um, I don't I don't have that power to do that. And I think it's okay that I don't. It's actually, you know, in a role like mine, my job is to probably make um, 20 decisions, 15 of which are way off base, and then 10 of which get carved off because of financial reasons, and five of which are impractical from any variety of reasons. So we settle on three. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And so I, and I think that titration of that with my colleagues is really important. And, and I mean, that's energizing to me. I mean, it's, it's hard some days because you wish you could just say, it's happening this way. But on the flip side, the value is that you actually get to filter it through a lot of really smart people who not are not only are my teammates, but they're, they're folks I work with laterally and, sure. and vertically in the organization. And maybe from my perspective, you play the role of like being the non-banking guy at the bank. It's true. Yeah. Like that's your value proposition. That, that's sort right. Of like other perspectives, right? Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating, actually. And, and the timing is really interesting for when we're talking because having been at the Graduate School of Banking for the last two or three days, I actually just came out of a diversity and inclusion set of seminars. Yeah. And one of the things that a lot of the folks in that conversation noted was that banking is kind of traditionally... You, you get into banking, you grow up in banking. Yeah. Uh, and, and the challenge with that is that then you have a tendency to view the people who are your customers just like you, and you have a tendency to view your colleagues as just like you, and you have a tendency not to really scratch underneath the surface a little mm -hmm. bit to say, okay, who who are our customers? Really? Yeah. What do they really want? And what kind of perspectives do we need to to really mine to to grow our business? Because you have a tendency to think it seems to be working okay. Yeah, and especially in a what did you say, a hundred and thirty-six year old yeah, bank. Yeah, hundred and thirty-six year old bank. This geographically this a relatively small area. Yeah, we're really we're pretty geographically constrained. But you know the the idea of where we are in financial services, a community bank. I mean, community banks are this remarkable resource. And um, we have a tendency to sometimes be myopic and say, well, we serve the greater Sioux Falls area, but frankly, we serve the greater Sioux Falls area plus where 
I mean, folks graduate from sure. Sioux Falls, Lincoln, Sioux Falls, Washington. Their families have been banking with us, but they moved to New York City or yep. Florida or what have you. Yep. What are we doing to keep them under underneath our tent? And so, or or they're going to move somewhere else. They're going to choose to bank yeah. with a larger bank. And so, we have an opportunity, I think, to really think differently but kind of the same, to yeah. be the same community bank we've always been, to, but be able to provide products and service differently. Well, I think 20 years ago, that wasn't even possible. I remember exactly. leaving Brookings and being with the Brookings Community Bank mm-hmm. and then you know going to school in Iowa and moving to Minneapolis. I could just... The, the restraint was there's no ATMs, right? right, like right. That was the reason. Now well, that's not an issue. Well, well, and I think that's what a lot of people run into is that um, on on your financial journey, you you have con- you often will prioritize convenience over preference. Sure. And I think that that's really the that was the case for me moving from Huron uh, mm-hmm. as a kid uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska. Well, it made sense to bank with Big Bank X because I knew that there was a Big Bank X ATM yep. in in uh, the Student Union at the University yeah, of Nebraska, sure. and um, I, I think increasingly that's becoming less relevant or the opportunity for it to become less relevant is there yeah. for forward thinking community our phone banks. becomes the bank anyway. That's exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yep. So uh, I made that point about being kind of the non-banking guy and your yeah. diverse perspectives. Yeah. Uh, they include, um, let's see if I make sure I get the whole list. It's, you know, leading a marketing agency, uh, an education app in the app store, um, healthcare for, uh, you know, retire, retirement centers. That's correct. And and then most interestingly, probably an analyst at the CIA. Yeah. And in between all of that, a university professor oh, yeah, and, a, no. and a guy who ran a research unit at the university. So, yeah. So what's the through line there? Or is there absolutely none? Um, I think there are kind of, maybe three through lines. I mean, okay. the first is a real depth of intellectual curiosity. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a deep person. I'm just a really curious person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I really, I can't stop thinking about interesting problems. And and so curiosity is one thing. I mean, and, and I think people can be curious, curious about a lot. I've been fortunate over the course of my academic life, my professional life, to also have the opportunity to acquire really interesting tools. So, um, I, you know, data analytics, statistics, research methodology, sure. um, comparative political economy, um, you know, cultural analysis. I mean, I was thinking today, reflecting on a course in black political thought that I took as an undergraduate. I mean, you know, just really interesting perspectives that have helped me try to spin the world in slightly different ways and stare at it differently. Yeah. And so in any one of those roles, that tool has traveled. It's just the intellectual curiosity and just enough ability to analyze problems so that I know that I need to bring smarter people to the problem to do it better than I could. Sure. And to know what kind of skill sets you need to bring to the problem. Um, and I think, you know, the, the third one is um, sort of a, a resilience, a professional resilience. Um, you know, to be an academic, which I was for a period, or to be a CIA analyst, um, you learn that you're not nearly as smart as you thought you were. Uh, And I think I've learned a sense of professional humility and resilience. I mean, when you submit an academic paper to a journal and you get the feedback back and they tell you you're the biggest idiot in the world (laughs) and you get that from an anonymous reviewer, you know, number one, you have to shake off the fact that you you probably aren't the dumbest person in the world. And you probably caught them on a bad day and they were giving you anonymous feedback. But it, it does give you a sense that, you know, as much as we believe we know, we really don't know fraction of what we need to. And so that goes back to the curiosity. It's right, that that virtuous loop that takes you back to, well, why didn't I get it right? And how could I get it more right? And and it just continues that Because those first two steps on your resume would certainly be roles that often involve people who are probably quite quite smart, right? I mean, CIA and a university Mm -hmm. professor and you innately curious and you seem to like 
your mind feels like a like a pretty good trap to me. Like it keeps a lot. Uh, it doesn't let go of a lot of these tools that you pick up. Well, the t- the tools uh, they don't they don't really leave me too much. I, uh, you know, some of the day to day facts leave me. I need a lot better uh, calendar and scheduling uh, <laughs> uh, focus. But you know, I think the intelligence community. I mean, I remember writing papers for. I mean for the vice president and the president and writing uh, writing a piece that got a challenge from an assistant secretary of defense um, around a very controversial topic and having a dialogue. I mean, having a dialogue as a 28-year-old analyst with the CIA with an undersecretary of defense where they disagreed with one of your one of your positions. Yep. And, you know, you, I mean, it's weird to, you know, I was a high school debater. I never imagined I'd be in a debate with an assistant <laughs> secretary of defense as a paid employee of the federal government. Yeah, the stakes um, actually matter. Right, that's right. And, and you know, and to have have someone like that say, I think you're completely wrong. And for me to lay out the case for why I thought it was right and to not get a response back, it's like, hey, I think I might have won that argument, <laughs> but I lost far more than I won. Sure. And and you learn that, that that's the case. That's part and of the job. Yeah, yeah, it's the integrity of the work and, and the quality of the work and the belief in in uh, the the process that you follow that really ends up being the reward. And that, and that was the case too in the university environment. So just to cherry pick those, I mean, there's so many of these, but how would an experience like that with with the assistant defense secretary, how would you use that tool working at the bank today? Sure. I mean, I think anyone who has to present a business case for any change that requires any sort of personnel investment or uh, dollar investment, um, I, I find that every day I'm either using soft skills or hard skills to try to make a case for why we need to make a change or why mm. we need to evolve the bank. And as someone who's come from outside of the bank, uh, I'm fortunate. I have so many smart and talented people who understand the nuances of financial services, and they're great at rolling their eyes at me <laughs> when I ask these questions. Yeah, well, often, I, just... I mean, and nine out of ten of the questions are questions that have been asked, they've been answered, and they've been answered adequately enough that we probably don't need to go further down that rabbit hole. But I think, um, you know, as I think about what, you know, those engagements with the undersecretary and what it's like to work with my colleagues, both laterally and and vertically, Mm -hmm. and then the the people who report to me um, in my team, um, I've got to be able to make a really good case. And it's, it's a good case that's not just around the hard facts. It's a good case around what how does it feel? What are our what are predispositions? What are our biases? What roads have we gone down? What yeah. how have people invested in the past and not felt like they've been heard? Because as much as you know, I think my thinking or anyone else's thinking is original, it probably isn't original. Sure. It's probably we're just trying to tackle the question in a slightly different yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think that um, I'd be curious since I've generally worked outside of eleven month stint in consulting uh, in my own organization. Mm-hmm. So You've done the entrepreneurial thing too, where you led small teams. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in those, sometimes those organizations tend to like, they just agree or say yes to whatever you say, right? Because right. you're in charge. So, how, how did, how is that a different spin that you're still making sure you're checking in on everyone's opinion and, and still making the case, even though they could just say, yes, boss? Right. right. Well, and, and I failed that way. I mean, there's no question. When I was a university faculty member, I ran a research unit at the university, and it was a one-person shop, but I worked with a lot of other folks. But my job was really to go out, get the business, bring it in, figure out how to structure the business, work with graduate students primarily to yeah. get the work done, and then bring the work back out. And um, I ended up becoming kind of this gobbler of all things I could get my hands on and really not hearing probably not doing as good a job hearing other people's perspectives, both about the capacity of the work that we were doing, sometimes the nature of the work that we were doing. And um, I, you know, I burned out and failed because mm. of that. And, and I've, I've been down that road sure. where um, I thought I knew it all and I was just going to keep doing it. And, you know, 
gosh, I would work from nine o'clock at night until three in the morning because the kids were asleep. And, you know, I, I've been through that, yeah. almost that startup fiasco yeah, where yeah. You, you get so myopic and so focused on this one thing that you're doing. Um, so I think, you know, from, as I step back, I think, you know, I've, I've made, I failed that way. Yeah. I failed yeah, yeah. that way. And, and I, I think um, moving in to healthcare, I had an amazing group of people that I worked with who knew more about healthcare than me. And I think the beauty of going into other industries where you maybe aren't the expert is that it forces you to have a whole lot of humility. A lot of empathy. Yeah. A ton of empathy, a lot of listening. And I think, I mean, I, if you were to ask my teams, I think they would say, oh, Bill could listen better. And I, there's no question. I absolutely sure. could listen better. Sure. But I also feel like um, I know what I don't know and um and that that to me i think is one of the things that you know professional wisdom has provided me is that you know i, I have some tools but i don't know a lot about a lot and sure. you know i mean maybe that's the buddhist journey right <laughs> well and, that, and that's, those are tough leadership role shoes to step in where management or board might say hey we need a fresh perspective right mm-hmm. let's get someone who's never worked in this let's get an entrepreneurial thinker or an academic a, but then all of a sudden you're leading a team of somebody who's worked in a bank for 25 yep. years yep. and they're thinking what does this guy know like why should i listen to him right I, and i think the the key it, you know i had this conversation with our, our cfo at the bank yesterday and he he and i were talking a little bit about my role because at times you know it can be frustrating because i feel like i i know what i want to do and i know and and the question is well how credible could you possibly be not being in financial services and and um you know i i sometimes find myself asking myself that question too. Sure. I was like well some imposter I, yeah, syndrome there. Yeah, do I really know anything about anything here? Um, but what he shared with me yesterday was he said, you know, if you look at the CFOs of major companies who make career transi- transitions, they often make transitions to a completely different industry. Sure. And CEOs make transitions to completely different industries. So CEO of Procter & Gamble moves to be the CEO of GM, you know, yeah. hypothetically. Yeah. Yep. And it's it's really more about- Because they know how to manage they know how They know how to manage, they know how to lead, they know what they don't know, they know what questions to ask, they know where to start, they know how to identify talent. Yep. Um, and they, they understand how to listen to customers, both internally and externally. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think that to me is something that, um, I'm trying to get better at every day. I don't think I'm even close to being where I need to be, but I mean, you know, I'm 46, so I've got some time, I think. (laughs) Um, I I haven't haven't timed out quite yet. Do you feel like uh, as you look back on that diverse resume, uh, yeah, just what are your, are you proud of the different experiences of the, I imagine the people you've got to meet through these roles has been quite fascinating and diverse. Mm Was there one that you're like, I wish I had another shot at that one, or like that was the right amount of time? Yeah, you know, I think my time at CIA was a really interesting time. Um, I was fortunate, and and we'll maybe talk a little bit later about about people have really influenced or affected professional life. But I was fortunate to work with a woman named Fran Moore at at CIA, and she ended up becoming the deputy director for intelligence for CIA. She's a really talented person. I caught her you know, mid-career, and she was in this place where she was, she had identified some sort of spark in me, and she was willing to foster that spark, cool. and, and she brought me along with her out of an office into a task force, and we spent a, a time in a task force together working cross-agency in the intelligence community, then she brought me back out, and then she brought me to the Director of National Intelligence, and I actually just started at the Director of National Intelligence, it was about four months in, and we realized we were about ready to have our first child and we were living, you know, in, in Arlington, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we thought, you know, we probably need a little more space and we probably need to think a little bit differently about life. 
So I, I remember walking up to her and saying, you know, Fran, I, I, we need to go home. I need to go home. And, um, and she looked at me and she said, you know, I understand, but you understand what you're leaving behind. And I mm. said, I, I do. Mm. Um, so do I regret leaving it behind? I don't. I mean, I, I made the right decision and we made the right decision for yeah. ourselves and for our family. Um, but I, I always wonder what would have happened. Sure. Yeah, what would have happened? And, yeah. and of course, I, I, don't, I don't gnash my teeth about it. You know, it's not like a wolf. It's sort of like the... Um, uh, what if, what if I would have started that game as quarterback in high school? Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Like, that's, that's really not what it is. It's more just like, I wonder what that life would have been yeah, like. Yeah, sort of a parallel universe. Ex- exactly, kinda. exactly. Bizarro, bizarro Bill. Yeah. What, maybe this will be more of a selfish question than for the listeners, but then how, how have you prepared yourself for those career switches? Because that's something I'm getting ready to do and don't know what's on the other side. Um, you know, it's we as humans like to be comfortable and we like to kind of fall into routines and, and, and get to work with the same people. And so is there any lessons there making these large changes, both geography, industry role that you've picked up over the years? Um, I think there are a couple things that really I, I lean back on. I mean, one is just the strength of my foundations. I mean, I was fortunate to grow up in a great family, uh, and, fortunate to have a great family. So that's, you know, that's number one. I just had a confidence that no matter what, I'd I'd be supported. And I think that makes a big difference. Um, Number two, I felt like my training was was good. It wasn't perfect, but it gave me, every one of my experiences helped me accrue a new set of skills that I felt like I could could really lean into no matter what I went to next. Um, And then I think having a practical fear of a reasonable fear of not being terrified. So, you know, and that doesn't necessarily make sense, but you need to walk into something and say, it's okay to be terrified yeah. that this is different. Yep. Um, and and I'm, it's going to feel weird for a while. And, um, and then to just take the time to kind of tamp that down and understand, okay, where are the first best opportunities? And in any transition, where are the first best opportunities? Where can I be most valuable to both get comfortable sure. for myself, but also to demonstrate that I have some competence that may be valuable to others? I yeah, think yeah, that, yeah. that becomes really, really critical. Yeah. So where along the way did you, like, what made you get into marketing? Because I feel like while marketing has become very data-driven and, mm-hmm. and, and using analytics, there's still a lot of human element, a lot of art, a lot of uh, intuition, sometimes some assumption. Sure. Guesswork, I guess, which doesn't seem like to me like you, the way I know you, but how did you get into that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I I did a ton of survey research as an undergraduate and a graduate student. I spent a lot of time studying psychology and and biopsychology. So, I mean, I think that there are a lot of natural, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of natural intersections with marketing and and the quantitative research that I did as a graduate student really prepared me to analyze any kind of data. It doesn't really matter if it's political behavior data or if it's uh, buying behavior data. So I had a good deal of comfort with that. The other side of marketing that I think is kind of fascinating is that marketing is not just about external, it's about internal. And how do you educate people about products and services within an organization? How do you develop training plans? How do you ensure that they understand the products and services and how to sell them? So they can, yeah. Yeah, and so a good deal of what I've done on the marketing side is that piece. It's, okay, this is what we have. How do we talk about it in the most effective manner possible so that our internal Hmm. salespeople can communicate that effectively to the customer? And then we can also understand what works and doesn't work about that communication cadence so that we can get it more right. And so- it, and that, that goes back to, you know, my teaching background, to have, having having taught, right? It's, okay, what's the most effective way to teach someone yep. how to talk about something? And um, bring that, them that along. That skill that traveled, yeah. Interesting. Huh, I like that. 
Um, so we were, speaking of leadership, we were fortunate to, that's how I got to know you well, yeah. do the Leadership South Dakota program with Rick Melmer, who's been on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, great. great program. Um, part of that program is, uh, of course, visiting corners of the state, meeting other leaders, seeing other programs in the state, but also just really getting to know your fellow mm-hmm. classmates. Yep. And opening up in some, sometimes some very personal moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you shared a story. I don't remember what what part of your life, but um, a pretty uh, pretty intimate story about dealing with some anxiety. Yeah. Uh, yes. And tell us a little bit about what you're you know what you're willing to share about what happened there and sure. what you've learned about that because this definitely applies to leadership as we talk about the fear that you mentioned and being okay with some fear. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, I remember telling the stories in Rapid City, actually, yep. uh, in the ballroom room with uh, Alex Johnson. Yeah. yeah. It was really kind of a strange room, <laughs> very strange place. Um, but um, yeah, the story is pretty simple. Um, it was October of 2015 and I was going through some pretty significant personal and professional crises. And a friend of mine, good friend of mine, um, I'll probably talk about her later. Uh, she said, you need to, we need to meet. We need to, hmm. we need to sit down. We need to talk. And, and, um, and she said pretty bluntly to me, three things. Um, she said, number one, uh, you need to get some professional help. You need to go talk to a psychiatrist and see if they can help you somehow or another moderate your anxiety and, and challenges with depression, uh, because that's the first step. Yeah. Um, number two, you need to find a good therapist who you can talk to and be honest with about what's going on in your mind so you can develop coping strategies that can be more productive coping strategies yep. than some of the ones that you have. And number three is, um, you know, make sure you surround yourself with your people, uh, you know, and, and the, the good people, the ones that, that you can trust and feel great about, uh, mm-hmm. your family and friends, and, um, and be really protective of that. That and, foundation uh, that you mentioned. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And so that was a really, I mean, it was a striking moment for me. And, and uh, you know, it really transformed some of how I thought about my life because I think as entrepreneurs, and I think I think my career, if I stare back, it is sort of this weird entrepreneurial journey, but not the typical one. Yeah. I mean, I've typically been an entrepreneur, so I've you know sure. I've, I've been in an organization and I've looked for new ways to do things and grown that way, and I've moved from. Um, you know, from federal government to state government to large healthcare to my own, uh, you know, partnership in marketing and advertising to a, um, you know, a startup in uh, in uh, the educational app development area um, to you know, deep web scraping. I mean, yeah, worked, yeah, I've worked yeah. in lots of weird places to banking, <laughs> you know, and I think um, in some ways there are parallels to that with the entrepreneur's journey about, okay, what's next? What do I do next? How do I energize myself? And, you know, there's, there's always a next fix, right? As an, as an entrepreneur or as someone who is, who's really excited about ideas and is deeply curious and wants to be successful. And I think, and I have perfectionist tendencies too, which doesn't, sure. doesn't help. Yep, yep. Um, and so, you know, I think finding healthy ways to pursue that growth as a person, as a professional, but also finding healthy coping mechanisms to deal with some of the anxiety and stress that might um, be unproductive was really, really important for me. And I mean, have I gotten it hundred percent right? No sure. way. No way, but I mean, have I gone further down that development path? I think I think so, and I think every leader, no matter who they are, uh, no matter where they are in an organization or they are in their personal personal lives, that that opportunity for deep reflection and people who will tell you honestly what's going on and what mm-hmm. they think and what 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 help you might need, um, it, it was invaluable for me. Um, again, have I got it one hundred percent right? No. Do you, th- do you think that like is that? Let's see what's how I'm trying to phrase this question. Those people who are willing to tell you honestly what you you know what you need to hear, not what you what they think you want to hear. Right? How do you find those people? I mean, 
because the first thought is like family, but not even all families do right. that. <laughs> right. And yeah, so I've been I've been really lucky over the course of my career to have people who have invested in me personally and professionally um, and who they've kind of self-selected. I don't even know how, yeah. how it happened. Like they felt like um, this, this guy, this kid, this guy has potential and he's, he's creating noise he doesn't need to create. And hmm. they've just been, they've stepped up and stepped in. I've yep. never actively sought out Asked. someone to say, hey, will you tell me how messed up I am? Um, <laughs> they, they've just honestly done it themselves. And, yeah. and, but, you know, to be honest with you. Because they clearly care. Right. That's exactly right. That those people have been willing to put their relationship with me on the line to tell hmm. me a truth that I might not want to hear. And their gamble has paid off, I think, in a lot of ways. That's because I think I, I, do need to, I do need those people. And I want to be that person for other Because I'm sure in some of those moments you disagreed or denied it or maybe didn't trust what they said. You know, most of the time, I, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. I just needed somebody to unearth it for me and, hmm. and take it out of the shadow and put, put it up in the light and say, this is the thing. This is the thing that's not working and you need to, you need to live up to better standards than this thing that you're hiding in the dark or you're shoving in a closet. Yeah. Because you said something before we were, before we were rolling the, re- the recording is um, what you said. Uh, leaders tend to um, always feel like they need to do more. Yeah. Like add yes. on more and, and do more and push further. How do you know when, when you've done enough, when you've gone far enough? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Sure. You know, um, I, I was visiting my, my family last weekend and my, my folks run a, a furniture store mm-hmm. and um, my, they have since my, my dad was, about, since I was tiny. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my dad moved, was an engineer and moved back to Huron to take over his family's furniture store. Is it second I, generation or third? Or? It's a second, well, second and a half kind of. Okay. Um, my, my great-grandfather ran the furniture store for a period and then passed away suddenly and my grandfather took over the furniture okay. store. But, um, <clears throat> I you know, I, my dad is a perfectionist. And, uh, and so, you know, I was thinking about that as I was actually walking over to, to do the podcast. Like, how would I think about perfectionism and when is enough enough? And when do you empower people to do the work and how do you coach people? And, you know, I grew up in a household where my dad was an, an outstanding business person, a good community business person, but he also probably burned the candle too, hmm. too hard on both ends with respect to doing all, all of the detailed things themselves rather than empowering other people sure. to do it. I think the hardest thing for me is to, on the one hand, not do that. I don't want to be that person. But on the other hand, just leave it all to chance, right? Sure. It's like the, the, the biggest muddy part of leadership is, well, just let everybody let everybody do it and we'll figure it out. That doesn't necessarily work. And it's yeah. certainly not. Uh, it's, Take everything, yeah. Yeah, the, the lesson that one of my mentors shared with me, actually from another person in the community who's really been successful in leadership, is... Um, Leadership is knowing when you need to drop down to the very granular level and understand things and dig in really deeply and understand every bit of nuance of it. And once you understand it and you feel like everything is tracking right, then go right Get back up there. and yeah. start soaring out and kind of you're, but, and, and I don't like it as like swoop in leadership. I don't think that's the right thing. You have to have a pulse all the time. Yeah. But the idea is where you see one of those vitals a little bit off, yeah. like, okay, let me understand this a little bit better and be curious about where those vitals are yeah. off. And so I think my friend Brian Graham calls that the, or the opposite of what you shouldn't do is the swoop and poop, like you swoop right, and poop, right. crap all over everything and then leave right. the mess for your team, right? Right, yeah. I mean, more of the time it's, it's um, 
not being reactionary, but instead keeping your fingers on the vital. So I don't want to be in a situation, nobody does, where, oh, the, the patient's having a heart attack. We need to come in and slam on their chest until we break yeah. their sternum and then we hope it all worked out. Yeah. Um, you know, it's more, oh, the blood pressure's a little high here. Let's figure out why the blood pressure's a little high. That's a coaching moment. That's not a stripping sure. moment. Yep. And to me, that's, that's the hardest part of leadership is, you know, um, that notion of, I can't do it all myself. There's no way I can do it all myself. I trust my people to do the work and I do 100%. Mm-hmm. It's just, when is, their, when is their pulse a little bit up and do I know it and, um, and can I get there before you know, we've got an a, a, a emergent situation? Yeah, because I certainly am curious. I, I would imagine listeners are too because I mean, you have a lot in your life, right? Like you commute generally mm-hmm. most days. You know, COVID's changed that maybe a little mm-hmm. bit, but like you don't live in town here. You have a big job, you have... Uh, a, a big family who, who is in activities and and is there an indicator light that turns on or is there a feeling that you're like okay I, I might be that feeling of burning the candle on both ends how do you know when you might be dipping in that zone yeah you know I think um, I, I've known it historically when um, I get home and at eight o'clock at night I'm, I'm asleep on the sofa like <laughs> that's, that's a pretty indi- pretty good indicator I, I fall asleep at eight o'clock I wake up at one in the morning and then I go to bed yeah you know you're that's not a, in your bed right you're sleeping right that's a pretty good indicator um, and that's also a pretty good in- indicator of my mood as well hmm. you know if if I'm not so energized that I'm in that kind of state. I also know that there's a whole lot of other things going on that I probably need to kind of pressure test in my life. But, sure. um, you know, th- th- that's one indication. I think um, I personally find that um, fogginess, I-, I can I-, I can feel it. I don't know. I think a lot of other people say it's just, it's just cognitive overload, right? Yeah. Like my brain is not refreshing at yeah. the rate I need it to. <laughs> and, Makes sense, yeah. and And so I-, I notice that personally where I just feel like, I'm not as acute as I need to be, that my assimilation of new facts isn't where it needs to be, my ability to recite the facts isn't where it needs to be. And it's just because there's just too much. The noise is too too great and mm-hmm. I can't get a I can't get a signal. And so I think, you know, ten years ago, would I fifteen years ago, would I have been that self aware? Probably not. I would have just fought through it or assumed if I just worked another four hours, yeah. it'll probably work it. itself yeah. out. And it, it doesn't. It never That's does. That's kind of academic, right? Like pull the all nighter and, and, right. and keep going, grind it, yeah. Do you have a short list of of your solutions through that fogginess? I mean, I know you're a runner. Is yeah, I mean, I think sleep it, running. I was thinking about that as I was walking up uh, here, and you didn't really give me any preview to question. No, so I, didn't. I was sort of getting my. <laughs> I just want to make sure I clarify that for the listeners. But you know, they're really. It's amazing how simple it is. It's um, it's more sleep, it's better eating, yeah. and it's more exercise. Yeah. <laughs> like it's ridiculous how simple it is for me. Yeah. Those those three things. If any one of those things is out of whack. I am, I am not the same human being. Yep. And, uh, and what's ironic is, you know, the, the stresses and strains of everyday life can push you so easily out of those productive routines. And, um, and I know it. I know it the minute that I get out of those routines that... The first some, things we sacrifice are sleep or exercise. Right. I don't have time to exercise. I don't right. have time to sleep. Right. Or, I'm, or I'm tired. You're just too tired. I'm too damn tired to go exercise. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm too damn tired to get good sleep. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's, that's exactly it, is that you start to make excuses for why you shouldn't live as well as you possibly can. And the irony is that you won't live even close to as well as you can by making those excuses. That's good. Yeah. Well, let's go to, usually I do this as an end question. Yeah. You've, met, you've mentioned it a couple of times, so I want to spend some time. 
it sounds like you've had some pretty key influential folks in your life that yeah. have shaped your leadership journey or that have impacted you. So let's I, talk about those. I people. have several. So I've already mentioned Fran. Uh, so Fran Moore, she was. Do you uh, know what she's doing now? She is retired from the intelligence community. I follow cool. her. I follow her on LinkedIn. So it's fun <laughs> to watch. She's now a senior, a, a senior consultant in the intelligence community, and um, just one of the most brilliant minds. Um, just tremendously talented. Um, when I joined her team at CIA, I remember the pitch, and you'll appreciate this because um, this is very similar, I think, to your education, your higher educational journey, or may have been. Yeah. Um, she, I was interviewing for several offices. One of was one of them was a counterintelligence center, which is this weird little place that lives in the cusp of analysis and operations. So part of counterintelligence center is investigating people in the organization who may be spying against the organization. Oh, I didn't work in that part. <laughs> I didn't want any part of that. Um, Sounds like it, a yeah, drama, that TV was, drama. That was, but the other side of it was this group that anal- or did analysis of foreign intelligence service activity um, abroad. So we were trying to understand methods and practices. And so it was a weird little thing, right? But it's pretty, it's important to understand how your um, allies or They're your enemies are working against and, you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and Fran said to me, and I was also looking at working in the Office of Russian and European Analysis, which is like, that's the... That's like the well, the Harvard of of CIA, right? I oh, mean, really? Historically, Russia was what sure. everybody cared about. So the best analysts, the brightest minds, went sure. there. Yep. They went to um, NISA to work on Middle Eastern related issues, Levant and Middle Eastern related issues. And I had a couple of offers to go to those kinds of offices and and use the skills that I had. And um, and Fran pitched this to me. She said, "Well, I mean, you know, you could go to Harvard." And which is OREA and is NISA, or you could you could come to McAllister, and uh, and I consider my office McAllister. And I don't know if she did any background research on me, but one of my final schools in oh, terms funny. of decision was McAllister College, and she oh, was from funny. upstate New York, so she had no idea. You know, this is a real story. This You're is not a just real using yeah. This, this is a real story. She okay. said, "Well, you can go to McAllister, you can go to Harvard." And she said, "I'm McAllister, so you need to decide if you want a small boutique no experience." And I was like, "Okay, yeah, um, good job. Either doing your research or just pulling it, right, right, or just pulling a college out of your." Um, but yeah, I, I never regretted uh, huh. being, and I learned attention to detail from her. I learned how to brief, to be succinct, to write better, to think better, uh, to collaborate across organizations, to have a backbone in tough conversations. Hmm. Um, I, I learned so much from Fran and, and there's not a day that goes by. I don't rely on some of the reserve of skills that she imparted to me. That's cool. Um, so, uh, and at, C- at CIA, I also had a mentor named John Morris and uh, John has passed away. He died of pancreatic cancer several years ago. And John was one of those mentors that he just was always there. He was always talking to people about you, even if you didn't know that he was. And so you would have people mention you. I had people mention me, oh, well, yeah, John Morris had mentioned uh-huh. you to me. And that created the opportunities cheerleader. to try new things. And, and I lived at his house for a summer and, and got to know him really well. But um, John was one of those kind of mentors that you think as, as his mentee, number one, he never signed you up to be his mentee. You just kind of became that way, which, which is awesome. Um, but then when he was passed, when he passed away, um, I, I got in touch with a couple of people and found out that, oh, well, I was one of about 40 people oh, that cool. considered John to be their mentor. And none of us knew about each other. We just knew that we were the most special person he in the world. Feel because, like you were the yeah, only. because John Morris took us under his wing. And so, yeah, John has just had a tremendous impact on me. He was a nerdy guy, a six foot six mathematician, PhD mathematician from the University of Colorado and low raspy voice, but um, I learned, learned a ton from him. Um, and uh, 
so John is John stands up strong. My my grandfather uh, was a another person that really is part of. He was a leader in the military. Uh, went to the Navy at 16. Wow. Uh, World War II served in the Pacific Theater. Um, grew up one of 12 kids in the rural Nevada desert. Left huh. his house so he could put some food on the table for his parents. Um, ended up becoming one the first uh, command sergeant major of a non commissioned uh, command sergeant major in the Army's history. He moved into the Army after he left the Navy. Oh my goodness. Um, and was a drill sergeant. Uh, Fort Benning in Georgia, yep. and um, just one of these guys. I read all of his papers after he passed away a few years ago, and um, you just saw this how he made men, but he did it by understanding them and really having a, a kindness and perspective about him. And all the commendations I read of him were just these these lists of why he was such a good man to his men. I mean, there's huh. nothing you wouldn't do for them. And so, and I always felt that same way, uh, the sense of pride. Like I always wanted to do well for him because he was a good leader of people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my father, I learned a ton in in the business from my father and, and how to not sat, not settle for um, what's in front of you, but to always try to make it a little bit better and to invest in your community. My mm-hmm. dad's a huge community member. So they're still in Huron. He's still, yeah. still in Huron and still active. And, you know, he's, he served in the community in Greater Huron Economic Development. And he served as uh, president of South Dakota Retailers Association. And cool. so, I mean, he just really gave um, professionally because it was important to him to keep the Huron community vibrant and growing. And so that's, you know, why I'm involved with Startups Who Falls. That's why I'm mm-hmm. involved with the Vermilion Cultural Association. Is yeah, I was going to say, does that shape your feelings about why you guys live in Vermilion and, and, and invest in invest, that It's the investment in Vermilion for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, that, Which is where you taught too. Yeah. yeah that's, I taught at USD and um, several years ago, a group of us formed a nonprofit to buy a movie theater in Vermilion mm-hmm. that was likely to, to go out of business otherwise. And that's become just a successful, fun, vibrant enterprise. Despite COVID, we managed to survive COVID. And, and so that's that's been an amazing experience. But yeah, 100%. Um, that the opportunity to invest in the community is that way that I can really push entrepreneurship in a slightly different cool. way. Well, I'm going to, like you said, I didn't do a great, great job of prepping you. So I'm going to ask a longer version of this question to give you a chance to uh, prep okay. on the fly. All right. But if you remember when you came to the Lemonly retreat and facilitated a few yes. years ago, you asked us a question about what are your hopes and your fears in three years, mm-hmm. right? Do you remember that? Yeah. So, so you came and facilitated that day at the the lake at Lake Madison, mm-hmm. and you asked us that question. This is like 2017, I think, mm-hmm. maybe 18. I don't remember. It was right after I joined the bank, so 2017. Okay, was mm-hmm. it? Okay, the fall of 17 then. And uh, as you, I think, sort of teased out to us that day is we'll do this exercise, and then three years later, which has happened, mm-hmm. we'll go back and look at these. And most likely, a lot of the hopes will have come true and a lot of the fears will have not. Right. And so this document lives in everybody's individual folder of what we call our PGP, our personal growth plan. Mm -hmm. And it's been fun to go back now that we hit that three years and a lot of those things, as you predicted, were true, right? Well, it's as you predicted. True. You were just the sage ones that (laughs) answered the question. Good point. So I want to end there and then we'll go with some little rapid fire. Yeah. Because I don't know... who knows? Maybe maybe we'll do this podcast in three years. Maybe not. But mm-hmm. uh, what are your hopes and fears in three years? So I like to divide them into personal and professional. So um, you know, professionally, um, I work in a financial institution that is at kind of the every everybody says financial services always at an inflection point. But I think more than now, more than ever, with financial technology, fintech companies becoming an increasing part of people's lives and the millennials mm-hmm. uh, and younger thinking differently about how the way the world works. Um, you know, I, my, my fear is that community banking will become 
less relevant hmm. and we're going to be fighting a battle that we didn't even know we were fighting until it came right to our door. Interesting. Uh, so that's something that, you know, is a professional uh, professional fear. A professional hope is that um, for an organization like First National, that we will be able to uh, challenge our assumptions in ways that help us grow outside of this market uh, and do so in a way that's um, organic and supports uh, customers who want to be with us for life. They're the people who bank with us as cool. as uh, their first savings account, and uh, they can continue to bank with us. And so professionally, that's what I hope for. And then I hope my teams can continue to develop around that vision. Cool. Um, personal hopes, um, you know, I really hope that, uh, well, let's start personal fears, because I think that's where I, I, I want to start first. Um, personal fears, I, you know, I, I have really amazing kids, and I have... Um, good relationships with the kids. They're different relationships with each of my kids. And I always fear that that relationship will change as they get older yeah. um, um, or it'll evolve in ways that don't, that doesn't feel great. And so, um, you know, I, I have teenagers now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm fascinated to see how that grows. Um, it's a fear of mine, but it's also a hope that, you know, that I, that we can continue to have this really fun cool. bond and, and be, um, be great together. Um, you know, Hopes-wise, um, you just want to live live a happy, personal, uh, peaceful life. Um, that you know that that's what I really hope for is this opportunity to um, you know stay true to um, being a good person uh, above and beyond being a good professional. I don't know; mm-hmm. it's pretty abstract, but yeah. um, you know, I, I don't have a target goal there. Sure. I just have a, a general feeling. You'll know it if you. Feel yeah, it. that's right. Yep. Yep. That's right. Well, it seems like on the kids' side, you've checked, you've already passed a lot of those hurdles if you feel like as you have teenage kids and still have that relationship. Well, I mean, it goes up and down. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, like, um, how do how do teenage girls work? Um, I don't know that really well. Never did uh, figure you, that yeah, out. <laughs> no, teen, teenage boys, I've got pretty well figured out. I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, but um, I'm, I'm still working on the teenage girls part. Cool. That's a great answer. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll rapid fire as we yes. took a couple here to finish up. So I know you're uh, a big reader. What's a book that you might recommend to somebody often? So a lot of people are maybe watching the Amazon um, miniseries right now, but um, Colson Whitehead's The Confederate Railroad okay. is um, absolutely brilliant. Um, it deserves to be read. And is that the title of the show? I don't even know. It is. The, the title of the show as well is Barry Jenkins directed it, uh, the, the miniseries, but the book is... Um, brilliant. It's beautiful. It's hmm. um, African American science fiction, but it's historical science fiction. Okay, sure. Um, so it's super powerful. And and it, once you go down the Colson Whitehead rabbit hole, uh, you won't you won't want to stop. The Nickel Boys is as brilliant as uh, the or no, it's not the Confederate. It's Underground Railroad. I'm sorry. Underground. It's the Railroad. Un- Underground okay. Railroad. Yeah. Cool. Um, this could be pre-pandemic or during the pandemic, yeah. but I've been asking folks how you unplug when you do feel like maybe you're getting to that point of being overwhelmed and doing too much. How do you unplug? I go run. Yeah, that's what I figured you yep. were going to say. <laughs> I go run. Easy. We've run together. And yes. it's, it's been, I think you're, pro- well. You ran up to Dinosaur I, you Park. You might be the only it. person I've ever had a running meeting with, which I enjoyed. That, that was pretty fun. That was a new experience because I typically am not a person who likes to chit chat. But so um, I was, it was a pretty breathless meeting. But it was good. <laughs> and then we ended, we finished with a beer too. So that's that true. That, there, you, we knew we were, we we were, calories we were working toward a goal. Um, we touched on parenting, but parents are absolutely leaders in my mind. So what's a piece of parenting advice you would share? Um, close your mouth and listen. <laughs> close your mouth and listen. I think sometimes as parents, and, and I'm guilty of it too, I want to I wanna solve things. I want to fix things. I want, And most, most of the time, most of the time I found that 
with all of my kids, they just want to be heard. It's <laughs> really good. Yeah. I like that a lot. Well, we talked about leaders too. So I guess the last one we'll finish with is an interview question at Lemonly, which is what's your superpower, the thing you do best? Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot this week uh, as part of my graduate school oh, sure. banking experience. Um, I'm a believer. Hmm. I'm a believer and, and um, not kind of in the old 1960s monkeys song way. <laughs> um, but I, I, people have asked me, was like, what's your personal mantra? And it's making the possible probable. Like to me, making the possible probable is the, at the core of who I hmm. am. And um, so I'm a believer in in possibilities. I'm a real believer in possibilities. And my role in whatever way I can do it, whether it's through coaching and mentoring and leadership or tactical skills is to see if we can take that seed and and make it grow. I love that. And especially, I feel like you're by trade, you would be a person who's like, let's figure out the the probability, the, the data, the likelihood, let's yeah. analyze it, let's decide. Well, if mathematically this isn't going to work, we better not do it. But right. on top of all that, it's just a belief. That's right. Yeah, I no, mean, it's, no formula is going to tell you. You just no, got to believe in it's, it. It's faith and it's culture and it's creativity and it's um, optimism and it's perseverance and all of those things are this magnificent stew pot because no manner <laughs> of probability can overcome those things. Yeah. Not not any. Well, that's an awesome place to lead or to leave and for leaders to make sure they have that in their stew pot. I like that. Mm-hmm. So thanks for being here, Bill. Yeah, thank you, John. It's really a pleasure. Thanks Appreciate for having the time. me on. All right. And that is it for our conversation with Bill Anderson here on the Lead More Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in and for listening. As always, we drop new episodes of the Lead More Podcast on Thursdays. So you can go and subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, on Stitcher, wherever you listen. Give us a five-star rating if you're willing and hit me up on Twitter. Tweet me at John T. Meyer, who you would like to see on the Lead More Podcast, or if you want to be on the Lead More Podcast, give me a reason why. Tweet me, at John T. Meyer. I want to hear as we're looking for a new guest here in our second year of the show. So thank you as always for listening. Take care and be well.